every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and welcome to Money Talk, the original Money Talk on Tuesday the 18th of July. This is Peter Lewis and thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the Chinese economy grew 6.3% year-on-year in the second quarter of 2023, faster than the 4.5% growth seen in the first quarter, but below market estimates of 7.3%. However, when compared with the first quarter of the year, GDP saw a 0.8% rate of growth, slower than the 2.2% quarter-on-quarter pace recorded in the first three months of the year. China's surveyed urban unemployment rates stood at 5.2% in June, unchanged for the second consecutive month, but the unemployment rate among young people ages 16 to 24 was 21.3% in June. That's a new record high. In other economic data from the mainland, retail sales for June rose by 3.1% year-on-year, a touch below the 3.2% expected, and slowing sharply from a 12.7% surge in May. Industrial production for June rose by 4.4% from a year ago, accelerating from a 3.5% gain in May. But China's real estate development investment fell by almost 8% year-on-year in January to June. The US climate envoy John Kerry is in Beijing for three days of talks with Xi Jinping, his Chinese counterpart, to restart stalled negotiations over global warming between the world's two largest polluters. Mr Kerry said he hoped to make progress in the talks on reducing methane emissions, transitioning away from coal, combating deforestation and on jointly increasing the deployment of renewable energy technologies. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Altcroft, David Roche, President and Global Strategist at Independent Strategy, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street, US stocks closed higher on Monday as traders remain optimistic about a soft landing for the US economy following encouraging inflation data last week. The Dow added 76 points or 0.2% to close at 34,585. That's its highest closing level of the year. The S&P 500 added 0.4% to finish the session at 4,523. The Nasdaq Composite climbed nearly 1% to 14,245. US Treasury yields declined on Monday, with few key economic data reports this week, and the Fed in its blackout period, ahead of its July policy meeting. Attention now turns to that rate-setting meeting on the 26th of July. Traders are pricing a 99% probability that the central bank increases interest rates by 25 basis points after pausing hikes in June. The two-year Treasury yield was down by three basis points to 4.74%. Markets in Hong Kong were closed for the day due to a warning issued for Typhoon Talim and the disruption also affected China Connect northbound trading. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index tumbled 0.9% to 3,210 leading losses in the region. And in the minutes following the China GDP data release, the yuan fell a third of a percent in Shanghai, despite the PBOC fixing the currency about 60 basis points higher than expected. And the yuan further weakened during mon- Monday trade to 7.1711 renminbi, that's 0.4% lower on the day. And in offshore markets, it's trading at 7.1769 renminbi. 
This morning, futures markets are pointing to a decline of 160 points, or 0.8% for the Hang Seng at the open. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Time to welcome our Tuesday morning guests. Uh, we say good morning to Stuart Allcroft, Asian Fund Management Industry Consultants. Morning, Stuart. Yes, good morning, Peter. And it's a better morning than yesterday, which was terrible. <laughs> yeah, although it was as typhoons go, it was pretty mild, yes. wasn't it? Well, it was a mild typhoon, but the weather was pretty rotten. Yeah. Rain, wind, and. But at least we get a day no, off. No snow. At least we get a day off. Also with us is David Roche, who's President and Global Strategist at Independent Strategy. Morning to you, David. And over in a typhoon-free Washington, (laughs) D.C., we have our international economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. Morning to you, Barry. Good morning, Peter. Stuart, did you get blown away? Were you unable to get into the city uh, by water? I I stayed at home the whole day and I was looking out the window and watching the wind coming in and going out. Um, well, I was sitting there. Well away from it. I was sitting there watching all this China economic data come in because I'm a bit of a nerd. So let's go through some of that. Uh, the economy grew six point three percent year on year in the second quarter. That's faster than the four and a half percent growth he's seen in the first quarter, but below market estimates of seven point three percent. It was the strongest pace of expansion since the second quarter of 2021. However, that growth rate has to be tempered by the fact that the data is skewed by the comparison with a year ago when Shanghai was entering a COVID-related lockdown. When compared with the first quarter of the year, GDP growth slowed to 0.8%, much slower than the 2.2% quarter-on-quarter pace recorded in the first three months of the year. And the GDP deflator, which is a measure of inflation in the economy, turned negative for the first time since 2009. Well, Stuart, remember, um, this was the year that the Chinese economy was meant to roar back to life, wasn't it? At the beginning of the year, everyone was talking about this being China's year and the reopening uh, was going to be the big economic story of the year. Just what's gone wrong? Well, I think it's turned from a bit of a tiger into a bit of a a cat. My mountain getting worse. Um, Yeah, what's gone wrong? I don't think anything's gone wrong so much as just that it is much slower in terms of recovery than many uh, people had forecast. I think the fact that um, some of the figures were a bit skewed by the COVID-inspired low levels of uh, a year ago. Uh, But at the moment, the China economy is suffering from a number of factors, one of which is that um, uh, interest rates um, are not going down in China as fast as they would like. There's a very big overhang of property, empty property, and and potential for defaults there. Um, borrowing generally in China is probably a bit higher than would be desirable. So, I, I, and um, the rest of the world is not now buying Chinese goods as fast as it used to. So, I think all of this is having a, a slowdown impact on the economy in China, and this will probably carry on for quite a while. Okay. David, what's your um, assessment of this? I mean, one thing to note 
is the sequential growth. It's slowed quite considerably, hasn't it? And I think that's what's maybe alarming people. Compared to the first quarter, growth's down to now 0.8%. So if you annualise that, you're only going to get growth of about, I say only, 3.3% uh, for, for the whole year. So the economy is slowing quite rapidly, isn't it? Yeah, I'd say 3.3% is probably the secular growth rate of China going forward, given its legacy problems. Now, what are legacy problems? It's usually something to do with your grandmother's will. But in the case of uh, China, it's to do with the damage they did to themselves due to their um, mistakes they've made about their development plans. Let's see how many I can remember. One is, of course, China motored on property, like a car motors on fuel. Uh, that property bubble is simply not repeatable. Many, many reasons for that, but not repeatable. The bad debts related to, to it uh, in the developers, in the local government finance vehicles, in the banks have simply not been resolved. And the kind of plaster that's been put up to cover them over really doesn't deal with the issues at all. Now, there's one other thing that comes on top of that that doesn't make it easier. We are in a deglobalization phase, <clears throat> Cold War. And that is going to get worse, and it's, a, it's an impediment to uh, Chinese growth by grabbing market share, which was the way that they advanced their economy or, or lifted so many people out of poverty in the past. That's not going to be repeated either. And the final thing is then, uh, without wishing to say that we're useless, the West is having an absolutely ghastly, um, almost uh, manufacturing session, uh, recession. Uh, because we consumed so many uh, uh, tangible goods during uh, COVID that we don't need to buy any more. So uh, the, the tech exports and everything else from places like China, Singapore, uh, Norwegian are suffering. Mm -hmm. So um, you don't get that kicker either. So I think China faces problems which are part and parcel of a secular decline to a lower, much lower growth rate, which will take several years. Uh, there's two key things then you, you said there that I noticed. First of all, you're really saying these, what's happening to the economy is pretty well self-inflicted. It's because of policy mistakes um, that, that have been caused by the Chinese government. And then the other thing that stood out there, you're saying the growth rate is going to be about just over 3%, 3.3%. That's way below what the, uh, the Chinese government's target is, which is 5%. <laughs> well, it doesn't worry me too much. Uh, if you ring up one day and I'm not there, you know it was really way below the target they wanted. <laughs> well, Barry, Janet Yellen's been talking about this as well, hasn't she? She's in India at the, uh, the G20 finance uh, minister's meeting. She was saying that, you know, this will have an impact on the global economy and on the U.S. economy as well. Absolutely. No, this is um, significant. Uh, yeah, Peter, you mentioned that the authorities want 5%. If you annualize what happened in the latest report, you get, what, a little over 3%. So I think they've got some catching up to do. Maybe David is right. Uh, yeah, as to Janet Yellen, this is her third trip to India this year. And as listeners know, she just got back from China. Mm. She came back to the U.S. for about three days and then went off to India. And after India, she does Vietnam. It's interesting what she is saying. She's saying, first of all, diversification of supply chain is not decoupling that there is plenty of room for trade with China. She's saying that India is an indispensable partner for the United States. I think if you add up these things, you get a very clear statement from the Americans that they're refocusing heavily on Asia, both China and India. Mm -hmm. 
but they're they're not with decoupling from India. That seems to be the message, doesn't it? That uh, it's de-risking, but really, not decoupling. They haven't coupled within <laughs> a, with India. There's a lot of work to do. I think that there's immense interest. Look, I think that uh, usually G20 finance ministers' meetings are not particularly important, but I think this one is. The the finance minister has organized two full days of sessions, five sessions over two days, and they've already talked about infrastructure. Now, I think tomorrow morning, your time, in fact, just a few hours from now, they'll be talking about cryptocurrencies and alternatives to the dollar. You know, <laughs> India is big on that. Mm. I think it'll be interesting for Janet Yellen to hear what some of these G20 countries say about all that, because we've got the BRICS summit coming up in South Africa in mid-August. And, you know, I don't think any of us think the dollar is done or even going to be diminished. But certainly the Indians and the Brazilians and the South Africans would like to see that. So they're talking about it, and that's good. Okay. Um, I'd just like to comment a little bit more, not, not on what Barry's just said, but um, one of the things that I've been reading quite a bit in the last uh, month or so with regard to Chinese, China's economy and the way in which it looks as though it will grow with the rest of the world has been the forecast that it will become the largest exporter of electronic vehicles, cars. Um, and I, I would be a bit... Um, skeptical about that particular forecast. It seems that um, this is where a lot of the economy is being focused at the moment in China. Uh, mm. EVs, electric vehicles are, are clearly um, a very trendy thing, very positive thing, and China has probably the largest manufacturing base for that. But there is market resistance to EVs around the world. And there's market resistance in many parts of the world to Chinese goods. So I'm just a little bit concerned that the, the expectation that electronic vehicles will bail out the Chinese economy, which seems to be the way they're looking at it, I, don't, I think this is going to be one of the areas which will, will possibly be a, a failure. Mm. It's, it's interesting. I mean, that's a very good point. Yeah, that's David. A very good point. Yeah, I, I'd say, I mean, I was looking at electric vehicles for... Uh, a poor old European electric vehicle producer last week, which is a sorry story of rags to riches, really. Uh, or no, riches to rags. Um, <laughs> and I mean, the uh, without naming the brand in China, electric vehicle manufacturers in the last two months have been up 85% year on year from a base which is not negligible. And these are terribly nice cars, if you like that sort of thing, et cetera, et cetera. And guess where they're all coming in? Through that nice, nice neutral port of Belgium. You have never seen an explosion in car exports, imports through uh, Antwerp as in the last couple of months. So this thing has already started and the resistance to it from um, the German, for instance, car producer companies, et cetera, et cetera, uh, has suddenly only started Two previously from German producers who only heard how wonderful China was as they'd lost uh, Russia as a first source of cheap, cheap fuel. They then all fell in love with China. Well, nowadays, the, 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 the song is sing they're singing has changed a little bit. I think that's an absolutely key story we should be on.
Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because even with that surge in um, exports of electric vehicles, if you look at the trade data, exports from China collapsed 12.4% in June. So you, you can imagine if it wasn't for that electric vehicle um, surge, what, uh, what the export numbers would look like then. Yeah, it's, very, it's, a, it's a very interesting micro story, which I think is quite right to focus on. The mm. other yeah. story I would, I would focus on is what Barry said. You know, in the new Washington consensus, which is what they have announced as their policy, there are three prongs. The first is we'll trade with you on the basis of fair trade, and that means no subsidies to your industry. Second, if you don't damage our security. And third, if we have a common problem like climate. I still think the G20 summit is all about seeing whether we can find a communications channel to find out what this particular Washington consensus can mean. I don't think we're there to a reversal of the trade policy as yet, by any means. Yeah, I agree with what you said, David. And I think what you and Stuart both said about automobiles, electric vehicles is really true. Just in the last 12 hours, we've had the Ford Motor Company reduce the price of its electric pickup truck by $10,000. The stock of Ford Motor was down sharply as a result. That shows that we've already got a competitive market in electric vehicles. And let's not forget, worldwide, the move to electric vehicles is government mandated. This is not market driven. It is the government in China, the governments in Europe, the governments in the United States, North America, Canada, that are driving this push if the Chinese really are that good and that competitive at exporting electric vehicles, they could run into some real market resistance and government intervention to limit their imports into the United States market. But I think we're probably six to 12 months ahead of ourselves. Yeah. It, it does seem very... It does seem, Barry, from what Janet Yellen was saying over over the weekend as well, that's about that Washington consensus, that um, they're not satisfied that they're, they're seeing fair trade practices from China. So those tariffs that were put on by President Trump, they are going to stay for the foreseeable future. Yeah, afraid <clears throat> yeah. so. Amazing, isn't it? I mean, you know, Trump to Biden, no change. That's true. No one talks in China, whether it's Biden, sorry, whether it's Blinken, Yellen, or now Kerry, talking about China making good on the phase one trade agreement to buy more stuff from the states. And no one talks about sanctions because they're not going anywhere, at least for the time being. Mm. And, and obviously, John Kerry also in, uh, in China um, at the moment for these uh, climate talks discussions. Is, is this China here trying to find a, a communication channel with the US? Is this, and is this going to be the one? John Kerry is a very nice man, but he reminds me of my Labrador dog. <clears throat> I don't think that uh, after he goes, the Chinese are going to be bearing any teeth marks. Uh, uh, and I don't think, frankly, with Deng Xiaoping as lately as last weekend, having run down as a priority climate goals so that they would, ob- they would be subjugate to the needs to keep the economy going. I don't think he's going to come away with a huge bone between his mouth. Poli- politeness is this is and and niceties perhaps but i'd say it might stop there he did say he was going he, on at them he did their feeling for channels of communication mm, he did say there was going to be some tough talking but you don't think there's but going to I be much very, action I, 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 i've talked with mr Kerry before and tough talking is when 
you know, the tail sweeps the ornaments off the table. <laughs> yeah, look, this is the one area where the Chinese and the Americans really can make some progress. Not with yeah, Kerry's visit that. necessarily, but on this subject matter. Look, whether you're in Asia, Europe, or North America, you can see that the heat and the climate volatility is immense. So, two major polluters, there's work to be done. I think they can find an understanding, but again, we're ahead of ourselves. So, uh, and it, won't be, it won't be done for next year. But this is not an area where the U.S. and China are in competition with each other. Um, this is an area where they have common interests and a common goal. So I think there's a lot of potential for John Kerry's visit. Um, yes, uh, you know, he, he's, he, he may not be the sharpest tongue in the, in the room, but he, might, <laughs> but, he, but he might nevertheless hit the right points because he might. he's talking to people who will have similar interests to him. The, and the, the problem about that is, you see, they do have similar instruments, uh, interests, in that they're both the biggest, baddest, worstest, awfulest polluters in the world. But they both make the same things not to be. You see, that, that, that's where I get a problem about this. I mean, <clears throat> I put up Siemens, uh, I put up two Siemens uh, photovoltaic panels on my roof, and one Chinese one. And, I mean, the Chinese one is bus and the others are not. I'm not saying that would be the case everywhere. But the fact of the, the fact of the matter is, these guys have a common interest, but they have a competitive industry. Mm. And, and, well, that's, and the, that's, the, that's the industrial side of it. The common yeah. interest is to, is to reduce the amount of pollution. And right. I, think that, I don't think it matters about the fact that uh, both are producing the same goods. I think anything that does something to reduce the amount of pollution and improve the climate uh, has got to be um, applauded. And Amen. If, if it's China that does it, great. If it's America that does it, that's great. And both should support each other for the purpose. But China's still got to say, they, hasn't it? They will. China's still got to say how it intends to reduce its methane emissions and, and meet the pledges uh, that Xi Jinping um, made, which was um, uh, because they have, he pledged, was it, back in 2020 that China's going to reach peak emissions by 2030 and have zero emissions by 2060. Mm. And we've been waiting ever since then to, for a plan as to how that's going to happen because it means uh, that it's got to reduce coal demand in China almost to zero. So we're still waiting for those, for those plans, aren't we? Yeah, and I don't think yeah. that's going to happen. I don't um, think it's going to happen either. And I think then she, I, I think uh, Xi Jinping said it wasn't going to happen at the weekend. He said that yeah. um, climate goals are subject to achieving growth goals. Well, I mean, I put it in my own kind of vulgar way, but that's what I read into what he said. So it's going to be damn difficult to to reverse the climate, the positioning of the climate goals and the hierarchy of priorities. It's going to be difficult. Uh, I was interested, in, uh, over the weekend, there was an interview with the former British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, um, and he was talking about the UK climate goals and making it absolutely clear that in his view there is not a single chance that the UK will meet it. And if the UK doesn't meet it, and it's doing, it's pretty much ahead of, uh, of most places, if the UK can't meet it, how can anybody else meet it? It's just the climate, mm. climate goals are, are a pipe dream. And I think they need to be brought back with a little bit more reality to some extent. Well, well, well coming back 
to that first question I asked you, uh, Stuart, at the beginning of the show about the Chinese, Chinese economy. What everyone is waiting for now um, is what is the government going to do? Are we going to see some sort of a stimulus, some sort of fiscal stimulus, which Beijing seems very reluctant uh, to unleash at the moment, doesn't it? So what should we be looking out for? Yes, well, I think we've still got to wait for maybe another interest rate cut. Um, I think it would be wrong for China to stimulate the property sector, although that's what many people in China are actually asking for. Um, we have a clear problem in the uh, youth unemployment levels, at, mm. uh, 21%, more than 21% youth unemployment Although the general unemployment rate in China is not unreasonable, about 5%, 5-point-something percent. So, um, yeah, I, it's going to be very difficult. It's a, As we've said before, this is an enormous tanker that can't be changed in direction very quickly because of the sheer scale of it. Um, so whatever the, the, the government might do, it might take many months for things to change. And... Um, We've only got well five months left for the rest of the year to see whether this year will be a blowout year or not. David, what, what would you? Well, let, let me tell you what I would like to see and see what you think about that. So it's not going to happen, but wouldn't it be a good idea if the Chinese government was to start selling off some of these state-owned assets that it owns, sells them to private companies, which would give quite a big boost uh, to, to private companies, also give quite a big boost uh, to foreign investments, wouldn't it, um, uh, as well? But the Xi Jinping's obviously oh, not going to do it. But you, Yes, yes, it would, but you'd have to do a lot of things first. You've got to remember you're looking at a political system as well as an economic system. And if you were to sell off private companies, you would be selling off probably the heavy end of industry. The bit that's really where the producer price index is telling you no money has been made. You'd probably have to fire a whole load of party members who are bloody useless in, in commercial terms. You would have to fill up the whole party structure and you'd have to put these, mm. uh, these countries on uh, a commercial footing. I used to work for my sins in this area in Italy, which was not by any means a Marxist state. But I can remember trying to put these companies on uh, a private sector footing before selling them off. Uh, and I actually don't think the Italians did very well uh, out of selling them off because they, in those days they used to have a railway which actually worked. Hmm. Now they don't. Uh, but that was done. But it's an immense job. And it's immense. The thing I'm saying, saying to you, uh, one point I'm saying, and only one point, is that it is not a job which the ideology of Xi Jinping lends itself to. Mm, he but... believes in the supremacy of the party in both economic and political terms, and that goes directly against what you were saying, because a switch to really boosting the private sector in uh, China would lead to a global, I think, mm. full market. Yeah, I mean... But it... I don't... Uh, it's not going to happen for the reason I said. Look Politics at, over ideology over economics. Look at Indonesia, where it has done that and it has taken that approach and, and the boost it's given its economy, the boost it's given the markets, the boost it's given to investment. China could be on a much bigger scale. But of course, um, as you say, it's not going to happen, is it? So it's, maybe it's a bit of a shame. No. Um, Barry, tell me about the US economy. The talk at the moment now seems to be about the Fed has achieved almost the impossible. It's, it's going to get inflation down, has got inflation down without tipping uh, the US economy into recession. And everyone's talking about now a sort of a Goldilocks period for the, for the US economy. Yes, you took my word away, Peter. I think it is a Goldilocks economy. 
I mean, look at what's happened on inflation. That inflation report last week was such a stunner because it showed that 12-month inflation now is down to just over 3%. Mm. That is a 6 percentage point improvement from only 12 months earlier, despite the fact that interest rates went up at a very rapid pace, 10 rises over the past 15 months. So despite all of that, the economy continues to grow and produce jobs. So yes, I think it is a Goldilocks economy. And I suspect that when we talk next week, we'll say, well, the Fed did it again. They raised interest rates after the pause in June, but probably that won't do any damage. Certainly the market is expecting an interest rate rise next week. And look at the performance of all of the indexes. Very, very good indeed. Why do we need then, if inflation appears to have peaked, um, the Fed in particular has been successful in getting inflation down, why do we need two more rate hikes this year, which is what the Fed is saying? Well, I think you've got a point there. We probably don't. But at the same time, the people on the Fed, as well as an increasing number of financial analysts like your two other guests, are saying there's a lot of inflation built into the system and that the heavy lifting has already been done to get it down to three. But given the wage increases we're seeing and the fact that labor unions now, for the first time in maybe a decade, have some bargaining power, you're probably going to need further interest rate rises to hold the inflation at three, let alone get it down to two and a half. Yeah, but there are some forecasters in the U.S. which are saying that inflation in the U.S. has reached the low point and there is an expectation of it rising a little bit from this level. So I, I think that that will be, um, as much as anything, the reason why the Fed is willing to make further increases um, maybe a 25 basis points this time and then another 25 basis points before the end of the year because they don't want to be seen to be cutting interest rates. They don't want to see the, the direction reversed, which might stimulate more inflation. And that's that's the thing that they don't want to see happen. Absolutely. Uh, so in, the, in the short term, it's, it's just trying to keep it steady as she goes without upsetting it one way or another. So, David, what do you think? Has, has U.S. inflation, people say it's peaked, but has it also bottomed as well? Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, is saying that, the, that we've the reached a bottom. The thing about U.S. inflation, which, which, uh, which <clears throat> attracts my attention, is if you're going to go down to 2%, you've quite a way to go. Now, the, the momentum in the headline index goes that way. The momentum in the call rate does not go that way. I would like to put the question worldwide, not just the U.S., because the U.S. is all terribly, terribly, terribly important. But some of us did manage to crawl out, out from under stones in other civilizations some 20, 50 years ago and had thoughts. Uh, my issue is this. Are central bankers worldwide prepared to go the pain, which has just been described, to make sure that inflation rate doesn't creep up again? And in fact, that it goes down to 2%. Or will the central bankers in the world fudge and fiddle and tell us that 3.5% inflation is really very good for you, toodle-doo, and the 2% inflation goals will be dead? David, I think you've got a situation where, given the level of almost constant consultation among the Americans, Canadians, Europeans, British, Japanese that they don't want to squander the progress that has been made. And therefore, they're very 
fearful that if you take your foot off this deflationary period of I think that's right. raising interest rates, you could so risk but then, Barry, all the progress that's been made. At risk of interrupting you, you know, that's a pretty warty um, kind of Goldilocks. Goldilocks is a pure young thing who flutters around <laughs> pretty fast while growth continues and inflation is a thing which is crawling like a caterpillar in the grass. What you are describing is a warty miss, and that's not, that I hope, a sexist remark, though it might be nowadays, or a warty chappy fluttering around really is not that attractive. Why? Because inflation remains stuck 100 basis points, say, above where the central banks promised us. And the growth they get over being stuck at those sort of levels so that they escape the risk of inflation going up further is much lower than the Goldilocks scenario. Milton Friedman said that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. But he wasn't I, a bit of a bollocks. <laughs> you can say Technical that. Term. But I, I think that, uh, you know, economics is not a, a, an exact science. But we're not going to get to 2%. Well, then the you public, face the public the is the public is looking at what happened earlier. Okay. You still got Look, grocery prices that are too high, if but they see the progress 2%. from nine percent to three. That's yeah, pretty that's good. very nice. They don't and want I'm to throw that away, Dave. All those happy little people, Goldilocks, are not in the supermarket. Just turn on the warmth of my cockles. But what I'm saying is, all those nice central banks and bankers who are a little less. Huggery boo like uh, Lagarde and uh, and uh, Ude, uh, you know they these guys have said it's two percent guys it's two percent guys can you hear me it's two percent okay now what I'm telling you is actually it's not well when you want comes you want shove, more, you want further increases in interest rates worldwide no, I hear you I'm, I'm an observer. I'm telling you, these guys are going to renege on their promises. And you just wait for Jackson Hole. As you saw at Cipri, you will start to get the ideology which backs a higher rate of acceptable interest rates, target rates of interest rates by central banks. And once you've got that, you're on the way to higher rates anyway. Because don't forget, I was born in the 60s. I was active as an economist in the 70s. And that's exactly what we got. But the, um, the, the thing is, that even if the central bankers are willing to tolerate higher rates um, or, or tolerate the pain uh, to get inflation back to, uh, to 2%, the general public probably isn't, is it? And politicians certainly no. aren't either. No, that's my point. I think the, the, the Goldilocks scenario, which has been described, is very important because that's what people, people have got. And I think the conundrum we face is that is not what the central bankers are on the hook for. Hmm. How do you drag A towards B? And I think that's going to be the big question mark of next year for markets as well. Because there's a hell of a difference between what markets are worth if you're discounting at a 100 basis points higher than where you are now. Okay. Well, look, we will have to continue this discussion on another day because sadly we've um, we've run out of time. It's a very important one as well, quite an interesting one. But thank you very much. You heard there David Roche, who is President and Global Strategist at Independent Strategy, Stuart Allcroft, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant, and our US Economics Correspondent over in Washington, D.C., Barry Wood. Peter, who is this? Money talk.
Thank you very much for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show by Nitin Dialdas, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital, and Sunil Kashap, who's Director of FinMet, with a view from Japan, is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Have a great day. Money Talk 